We are going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. Uh, so if you will start turning there, we're going to uh, be in the first 20 fun, 21 verses of chapter 2. Um, but as, we, uh, as you're turning there, why don't we pray as we look at the Word. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for the fact that this book isn't dead. It isn't just an old book we read, but it comes alive with the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will just open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. Speak through your Holy Spirit into each of our lives. Father, I pray that you will take my feeble words and fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit, because without you in the mix, what I have to say is nothing. May it be your words and not mine, I pray. We dedicate this next few minutes to you as we, we seek to hear from you. In your holy name, amen. All right. So chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost. It also includes uh, the, the story of Peter's first sermon uh, that he gives on Pentecost Sunday. And we're going to look at just part of that today. We're not going to look at the full sermon. I encourage you to read the full sermon at some point. It's a great sermon. Um, we'll, we'll kind of highlight part of it, but we're not going to be reading all of it today. Um, so what is Pentecost Sunday? Pentecost Sunday is the day that we, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Where do we find the disciples? Jesus has just ascended into heaven ten days earlier. Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, spent 40 days with the disciples, teaching them, and we talked about this last week, he, how he taught them and he, he basically lived with them and shared with them about the kingdom of God. And then last Sunday we talked about how he went up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And he told the disciples right before he went into heaven, go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise that my Father will send you. Which is the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they've done. They've, they went back to Jerusalem and they have, they've sort of sequestered themselves and they've spent that time praying and fasting. They they didn't know fully what to expect, but they just knew to be waiting. And that's where we find them at the beginning of chapter 2. All right. So if you'll follow along, we'll read the first 21 verses here. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like, a, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were seated. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were judging, now they were judging, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews and ev from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pyrega and Pamphylia, 
what, what happened to just names like California and Washington and Idaho? I mean, man, I'm glad we moved away from these names. Whoo! Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse 10. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the uh, the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. All right. So it is Pentecost. And the way we know it's Pentecost is because it says it's Pentecost. Pentecost is not a Christian term. It is not something that came about with the church. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It was a Jewish holiday that the Jews celebrated every year. So there are three major festivals in the Jewish culture, two of which are are festivals of migration, meaning that people were intended to come to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the festivals. All right? One of the the biggest one is the Passover. And they had just celebrated the Passover, um, and that's when Jesus was crucified. And he died and he rose from the dead. So every Jew from as far as, really it says from the known world, tried to make their way to Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem would swell with numbers. What was usually a city of around 50,000 people would normally go up to close to 200,000 people. I mean, it just exploded. It flooded out into the farm sides around Jerusalem. Okay, Everybody would come together for the Passover. Now, 50 days, penta means 50, penta cost, 50 days post-Passover, they would begin the Festival of Weeks, which was the festival to celebrate the harvest, to celebrate God's provision for the people. This was the second festival that people were to migrate to Jerusalem for. So what normally happened was people from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem for Passover, and then they would just stay for 50 days until the festival of weeks. Because most journeys took weeks to get to and from, and so they couldn't spend all that time traveling. They would basically go home and turn around and have to come right back. So they would come and they would stay. All right? So the city of Jerusalem is just bustling. There's tons and tons of people. All right? 
And so Pentecost is started. The beginning of the festival of weeks has happened. Now the disciples, as I said, were sequestered. They had kind of hidden themselves away, not out of fear, but they were waiting. They didn't know what to expect. They were praying and they were fasting. And then it says, then the sound of a, uh, the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. How did they know the wind came from heaven? It's a good question. I wasn't there. I can't tell you how they knew. My guess would be that it wasn't windy outside and there was, all of a sudden was wind. Maybe the room's windows were closed. The shutters were drawn so that they, I don't know. We don't know. And it is all of a sudden in the room. But what's interesting is, is that it does not necessarily highlight so much the fact that there was wind, but that there was this sound of a violent wind. So in the Old Testament, every time the presence of the Lord appeared to the Israelites, it was preceded by loud sounds of nature. Most, most readily known is when, when God appeared to the Israelites at, on Mount Sinai. So Moses has gone up under the mountain. He's received the law from the Lord and all the different things that the Lord has for the people. To the people who are off the mountain there on the valley, in the valley, He's addressed them, and then it says, the Lord appeared and there was thunder and crashes of lightning. And that was the signal the presence of the Lord had come. And the people then left the camp and went to the mountainside to hear from the Lord. little fun side note. The Lord spoke to the people, and the people, they like pissed their pants. They were terrified. They were so scared of the Lord. Because it's the Lord. I mean, the presence of the Lord was there. It was, it was so scary to them that they actually told Moses in that moment, Moses, you've just spent 40 days with him. You guys got a good relationship going right now. Why don't you speak for us to him? And he can speak through you to us. This is the beginning of what would become the line of prophets. From this day forward, the Lord never spoke audibly to the entire nation of Israel. He always spoke to a specific person, a prophet, who would hear the word of the Lord and then that person would then speak the word of the Lord to the people. All right. So from this point forward, God spoke through a person because the, the very presence of God was terrifying to everyone. And so they, they, they distanced themselves from God in a way. So this wind comes into the room... The other interesting note in this is that it's a wind. The Greek word and the Hebrew word for wind is the exact same word that is also translated for spirit. In Hebrew, it's ruah, and in Greek, it's pneuma. It's, so the very, the very word of wind or breath so if you look at the, the time when in, in the creation story where God breathed his ruah, the breath of life into humanity, he's using, it's the same word as his spirit is going into humanity. Interesting note. The Holy Spirit, the very, the holy ruah of God. The sound signaled the arrival of the presence of God. This noise and this wind signals that it's His Spirit that is entering into the room. And then it says that there is a, 
a tongue of flame that splits up and resides on each of the disciples' heads. Some of us have seen pictures of of this moment where the disciples are sitting around a room and they all have like what looks like a little candle on the top of their head. They've got a little candle flame. I always thought when I was a kid, how does their hair not catch on fire? I mean, because there's flame right above their head. But again, it says what seemed to be tongues of fire. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was actual fire on their heads. Fire always symbolized the presence of God. Throughout the Old Testament, when God was present, fire was what He would use as His symbol. When Moses is in the presence of God, he's in front of the burning bush. This bush that is ignited with fire, but it isn't being burnt. Because it's not necessarily fire, it's just the imagery of of fire that represents God's presence there. God tells Moses while he's standing there listening to him, take off your shoes because this is holy ground. Because God was present. When When the Israelites exit out of Egypt and God rescues them from Egypt and they are leaving Egypt, they go into the wilderness and by night the Lord guides them with a pillar of fire, a giant column of fire that would would move in front of them. God didn't just give Moses a map and say, take this route here and get to the promised land. God Himself guided the people. If the fire pillar moved, the people moved. If the pillar of fire stopped, the people stopped and they would set up camp for the night. That's how it was. It was this very real image of God's presence among them. And then one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is on Mount Carmel when Elijah is is having this dueling contest with the, the priest of Baal, which is this false god. And there's like 450 of these priests and they're doing all these things to try to get their god to start a fire on the altar and burn up their sacrifice. They spend all day doing it. All day. And Elijah waits. And then Elijah's turn comes. And, and Elijah doesn't just ask God to start, like, to ignite the fire, uh, on the altar. What he does is he, he makes it even more challenging. He tells servants to go and to get water and to, to soak the altar so much that there's a moat of water around the, around the altar itself. And then, he doesn't spend all day praying and asking God to do this. He says one prayer. He says, God, make your presence known. Show them that you are real and the true God. And all of a sudden, a column of fire, the very presence of fire, or presence of God falls on the altar and consumes it all. It doesn't just consume the sacrifice, but it burns up all the water. It destroys and burns up the rocks the altar was made of. Do you know how hot a fire has to be in order to burn away a rock? You can't do it. (laughs) The presence of God landed on that altar. So fire has always represented the very presence of God. 
So here's this violent wind, this violent sound of wind that enters into the room. The presence, the Spirit of God has entered into the room and then ignites above each person a little flame to represent that they now have God's presence in them. There wasn't just one little fire in the middle of the room, meaning God was in the room, but it separated and went into each of them. And it says that. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is an interesting idea, and this is one of those things that um, some denominations of churches really gravitate to. The idea of speaking in tongues is, it's a biblical idea. It's a spiritual gift, speaking in tongues. What that means is that you speak a language that is not your own language, um, but it's not necessarily another earthly language. It, it often rep- is considered to be a prayer language. Um, and some churches believe that the only way that you are truly filled with the Holy Spirit is if you can speak in tongues. But I don't necessarily think that's true, because not every Christian speaks in tongues. So, unless we're all just not saved, what it means is that I believe that the Holy Spirit is, and I preached a sermon on this passage actually, that I titled, The Swiss Army Knife of God. The Holy Spirit is is God's Swiss Army Knife in essence. He has the tool that you will need in every situation you have. Everybody knows what a Swiss Army Knife is, right? It's kind of that, it's that little red pocket pocket knife that is normally pretty thick because it has just about every tool you will ever need. If you need a screwdriver, you can get it on your Swiss Army knife. If you need a file, if you need a knife, if you need a toothpick, if you need little baby scissors, it has all that stuff, right? It's the tool for everything. The Holy Spirit is very much the same way. In the sense that in every situation you find yourself in, the Holy Spirit will give you the tools you need in order to do God's work in that situation. Alright? So I think that this part of Scripture where it talks about how all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit and all of them begin to speak in tongues is more of a sign of God using His pocket knife than God saying you must speak in tongues in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you have to think about the situation these men are in. They are the only ones who are following Jesus currently. However, there are nearly 200,000 people in the city of Jerusalem from all over the known world who speak all different languages who God wants to tell Jesus about. So he gifts each and every one of these men the ability to speak other languages. Right? And I think that the coolness of of who God is, is it not that necessarily each of them were speaking a uniquely different language. I don't think, you know, Peter is talking in Egyptian and Matthew is speaking in Mesopotamian and uh, whoever else is speaking in Latin or something. I don't think it's each of them are speaking specific languages. The way that I think, the way that I interpret this is that they're just speaking and the hearers are hearing it in their own language. And the reason that I I believe this is true is because it goes from 
all of them speaking as a group, to when the, this multitude of people who are from all different languages come together and talk to the disciples, it goes from everybody speaking to one person speaking, Peter. And Peter is speaking, and I don't think Peter understands he's speaking in a different language necessarily. I think Peter is speaking his own native language, and God is taking his native language and being interpreting it into their languages. Because Peter isn't sitting there re re stating the same thing over and over again in different languages. He's just speaking, and they're all hearing what he's saying in their native language. And they're, and they're astonished by it. So much that some of them think that they must be drunk. Which is interesting to me, because um, it's not the disciples who were necessarily the weird ones. It was the fact that they all could hear their own language coming from them. Maybe they were the drunk ones. No, no one's drunk. It's 9 a.m., Peter says. Peter says, why would we be so drunk already at this point in the morning? No way. So he says, let me tell you what's really happening. And this begins the, his whole sermon. He goes into a, a, a amazing telling of Jesus' life and the death and the resurrection. And he doesn't pull punches because every single person in this crowd was there when Jesus died. They were part of the group that pushed for him to die. And he doesn't pull his punches. He doesn't say, yeah, those guys over there who killed him. He says, you who killed him. But he's saying, listen, guys, this is the end. These are the last days. The Spirit of God has come upon all of his people. The old will dream dreams. The young are going to prophesy. All men and women who have the Spirit in them will be given the gifts to do what God is needing them to do, is what it's saying. And he tells them about Jesus' life. He tells them about his death. He tells them, hey, listen, guys, even though you guys killed him, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later. He has been spending time with us, teaching us about the kingdom of God, teaching us that if we believe in him, then we will be saved from our sins. And it says at the end of this chapter that 3,000 who heard him chose to believe and were baptized and joined the church. 3,000 from all over the world. You see, the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit empowered Peter in a way that no one else has ever been empowered that we know of. He spoke through Peter in a way that people from all over the world heard them in, his, in, his own, in their own language. And they go back out into their own homes and they begin telling people about Jesus. They begin little churches. We know this is true because the church of Rome is believed to have started here. Because no missionary ever made it to Rome to start a church. If you read the book of Romans, Paul is writing to the book of Rome or to the people of Rome not as the person who started their church and is trying to help them fix things but as somebody who has heard of their church and is trying to help guide them it was Paul's life mission to try to make it to Rome so we know that the church didn't get started by Paul or by other missionaries it is believed that the Romans who were there and heard it on from Peter's mouth went home and they started to tell others. And they, the church formed from that. 
The Holy Spirit is an amazing, an amazing thing. It's the very essence of God. It is God. We believe that the Holy Spirit is God. He's, he is, it's part of the Trinity. And when He comes and He resides in each of us, He fills us with God's power to be used in the ways God needs us to be used, to transform us, to work in our hearts and bring us along the journey of, of transformation. So I don't want to focus too much on like the day of Pentecost so much. And it's important that the Holy Spirit came. But what I really want, I want to focus on the who it came to. The who of this story. So the disciples are, at this point, 11, the 11 men who Jesus picked and we know that these, what were 12 men, these, these disciples were not the cream of the crop. It's not that God, that Jesus took applications and looked for the ones who went to MIT or who had, you know, went to Harvard and were just the brightest and the best and everything. Most of them were fishermen. And fishermen were artisans. They were basically craftsmen. They were people who, they were like you and us, you and me. Matthew might have been educated. He was a tax collector. He might have had some education, but he was not liked. He came from the wrong side of the tracks in that sense. Some of them were zealots, meaning that they were sort of extremists in the Jewish world. And they were part of the group. The Holy Spirit, the first time the Holy Spirit came, it came to those men. It didn't come to the Pharisees. Didn't come to the Sadducees who were the, the temple leaders, to the religious people. It came to the normal people who had been following Jesus. Now, I don't want to look at all the, the disciples. I want to look at just Peter. Peter is highlighted in the Gospels quite often. We hear a lot about Peter throughout the ministry of Jesus. But sadly, a lot of the times we hear about Peter, it's because Peter sort of messed up. He did something he shouldn't have done. or he, Because Peter was a guy who spoke before he thought, and he did often before he thought. He lived with his foot in a readily stated place in his mouth. He, he just, he was that kind of a guy. And when we find Peter on the night before Jesus is um, betrayed, Jesus is washing their feet, and, and Peter says he'll never leave Jesus, and he's going to always be with him. And, and Jesus, Jesus tells Peter, listen, Peter, by tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times before the rooster crows. And this just blows Peter's mind. No way, never will that happen. I won't do that. I would never deny you. They have dinner, they go up to the garden, Jesus gets arrested. Peter follows the, the troop that have Jesus back to the place where Jesus is going to be put on a mock trial, a fake trial just to get him arrested. And, and Peter is trying to get his way into the inner part of the building to be, to hear the, to hear the trial and to, 
be there to support Jesus. And in the process, servants and other people who were there in the outer courtyard recognize Peter. And they say, hey, you were with Jesus. And he says, oh, no, 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 I was not. I wasn't. They said, well, weren't you one of his disciples? No, 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 no. I don't know those guys. No, I'm sure you know. I do not know who Jesus is. The rooster crows. Three times he denied him. This is the last time we see Peter until after the resurrection. Theologians believe that the reason we don't hear about Peter before the, the resurrection is because Peter flees. And he goes in shame, and he hides in, in misery. And if you, there's several different movie renditions of the crucifixion and this period of time of Jesus' life. And I, I know of at least one, I think a couple of them, show this. They show Peter going and hiding away on his own, weeping in, in solitude because of his anguish for what he has done. We know that he's not with the disciples. And the reason we know this is because when Jesus does come back to life, Jesus tells Mary specifically, go and find Peter and the others. Because he knows Peter isn't with the disciples. I think it's the reason Peter runs to the tomb to see for himself because he's elated at the fact that he might not get a chance to redeem himself. One of only a few of the, uh, there's only a few stories or accounts after Jesus' resurrection where Jesus has interaction with the disciples that, that are recorded in the gospel. He spends lots of time with them. But we, there's only a few stories that are recorded. But one of them is the story where on the, the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus has a conversation with Peter about whether he loves Jesus. He says, of course I love you. He says, feed me, feed my lambs. And then he asks him again. And then he asks him again. And each time he's asking him, a little fun side note, the word he's using for love that we translate as love changes in Greek. It goes from being kind of an acquaintance love to a brotherly love to this, do you love me with everything you have? Love. Agape is the word that we we translate as love there. And every time it changes, Peter's noting the change. Peter recognizes that it's now been three times I've asked he's asked me, and only a few days ago I was asked three times whether I knew him, and I said no. It does not He does not miss the point that Jesus is reconciling him in this moment and making him whole in relationship with Jesus again. Fast forward to Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit has come down on all of the disciples, not just Peter, but all of the disciples. But when the crowd comes and begins to talk to them and ask them questions, all of the The other 11 don't really say anything. It becomes Peter. Peter steps forward and he speaks for the group. He gives the very first sermon. He tells about the gospel for the very first time. And as a result, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus and are saved. 
in a period of roughly 50 days, Peter has gone from the ultimate shame he felt after betraying Jesus to being reconciled, to being used by the Holy Spirit to bring salvation to people who were seeking it. We all have pasts. We all have things that we aren't super proud of. Maybe we have shame. Maybe some of us have things that we can't, we couldn't expect anybody to love us again for. There's no way that God would forgive that. I'm sure that's how Peter felt. There's no way he could be redeemed. There's no way I could be redeemed. There's no way I can be used. I mean, there's no way that somebody could, that God could use somebody like me. I stand in astonishment sometimes at how God uses this. Because I don't see how it's possible sometimes. We all have that. And here's the amazing thing, is that as long as you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and He he has come to live in your heart, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The very being of God resides in your heart. We don't see it, but you have a little flame of fire on the top of your head. He has redeemed you. He has transformed you. He is transforming you. Peter is not perfect from this day forward. Peter will continue to put his foot in his mouth. He will continue to make mistakes. But he is on a journey now with God that God will continue to hone Peter and transform him into a better and better tool and more and more in the image of Christ. That is who we are. You are not perfect right now. And that's okay. But as long as you are in a relationship with God, as long as you are are allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you, you're on the journey to becoming more and more like Christ. You're on the journey to be useful in more and more ways. Because the things that you might think about in your past that you could think, how could God use that? I'm going to tell you something. All things can be brought to good for those who love God. He will take anything in the past, anything that you have done to mess up, and He will transform it into something that can be used for the Spirit to bring about God's will more in the world around you. I thank God. Because when I was younger, I gave God lots and lots of opportunities to take stuff I was stupid enough to do so that it could potentially be used later. Don't do bad things just so God has stuff to use. But (laughs) Sorry. God is working in all of us. And maybe today is the first time you're hearing that you could have the Holy Spirit with you. Maybe you have been a Christian and you've never really said fully yes to God. There's always been part of you that you've kind of held back. 
maybe you've never said yes to God ever. And, and this is the first time you're saying, I want Jesus to begin the transforming process in me. I'm going to pray. And we're going to pray through this together. And, and in your heart, I want you to pray along with me. Because even if you have the Holy Spirit in you already, which I believe you do, it does not hurt to ask for a renewal every day. Because every day is a new day and the Holy Spirit wants to work in you every day. So, if will you pray with me in your heart as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank You for the fact that He came, He lived a life here, and He died so that I could be saved. Father, I ask You to forgive me of the sins in my life. I ask You to come and to live in my heart I ask You to begin to transform me to be more like You. I thank You for Your forgiveness. Father, I ask You to fill me with Your Holy Spirit. I want to say yes in all things. I don't want to hold anything back anymore. I want You to begin to work and to transform me into more and more what You want me to be. Help me to not drag my feet. Help me to just say yes. Make my my spirit sensitive to Your voice in my heart, I pray. Thank You, Father, for Your Holy Spirit. Thank You for the fact that You never give up on us. That You pick us up. You walk alongside us. You are ready with the Swiss Army knife of God to give us what we need in every situation. We love You, God. We want Your glory. And we want Your will in our lives and in our church. In Your name we pray. Amen.